I'll be reading from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Thanks, Gavin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it we catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're about. So we catch a glimpse of who we are in you. As we stop and reflect on your word this morning, impress it upon our hearts that we would not just receive it as facts, but we would hear it as the announcement of your love for us. Make Jesus large in our imaginations in these moments and teach us what it means to trust in him, not just for uh, salvation in the front end, not just to get in the door of your kingdom, but teach us what it means to live a life of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. When we first meet the Apostle Paul, who wrote the words that Gavin just read for us, when we first meet him in Scripture, he is what we would call today a religious terrorist. He is. You can read about it in the book of Acts. If you turn to Acts chapter 7, that's the first time we meet the Apostle Paul. What's going on is the very first martyrdom happens. A man named Stephen is preaching and is causing an uproar because people are starting to believe that their worth isn't defined by this thing or that thing. They're starting to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they have forgiveness of sins, that they have a foundation of worthiness that can never be wiped away, that they have a love they don't need to earn, and it's turning the world upside down. It's changing everything. So Stephen's preaching this, and he faces opposition from the leaders because if, if you can't... This isn't a political comment, but if you can't threaten people with, you know, withholding for forgiveness or uh, value or worth deemed on them because of this thing or that thing, um, who knows what would happen, right? So that's happening, and Stephen is killed for his faith. It's in Acts 7, and that's where we meet the Apostle Paul, who looks like he's in charge of this stoning. He's in charge of the execution. And then we hear these words in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. It says that Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. So that's Paul. That's who we meet in Acts 7 for the first time. And you can read in his writings in the New Testament. This is Paul who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. In Galatians 1, he talks about this time. He speaks about what he was motivated by in this time. And he says he was motivated by trying to outdo others, trying to prove himself. He says he excelled at his religious asceticism and his commitment above all his contemporaries. So he's motivated by this need to be number one and elbow other folks out of the way. And he was also motivated by this pride in his heritage. He was motivated by this passion that blinded him to the point that he felt justified in dedicating his life to destroying the early Christian community before he grew up. So he was motivated by trying to prove his worth, by elbowing other people out of the way, and he was motivated by this pride in his heritage that blinded him to others. Those were his motivations. Thirty years later, thirty years after we meet him in Acts chapter 7, Paul himself is executed by the Roman Empire as an enemy of the state. 
And it's not because he had terrorized Christians. They kind of didn't have any problem with what he was doing in Acts 7 and 8. It's because Paul would not stop traveling from city to city, not to drag people off to prison. He would not stop traveling from city to city, planting churches and sharing the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God had brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope into this world. And that gospel had caused another. Now, I know people change over time. I'm not the same person I was even 10 years ago, but how can we explain such a drastic, drastic difference in the span of three decades? To go from maybe the primary opponent of the early Christian church to the person who was the human writer of 13 books of the scriptures. He planted countless churches. How can we explain such a drastic change? It's because Paul had been given a new heart, a new motivation, a new way to thrive that had allowed him to come up from under the need to prove himself. It had allowed him to come out from under the blindness of his pride. Now, none of us in here are religious terrorists. I don't Right? I'm, I'm not, I don't think. None of us are religious terrorists. But I think all of us in here know what it's like to be motivated by trying to outdo other people. Prove ourselves by our GPA or trophies on our shelf or whatever. I think we know what it's like to be someone who takes great pride in our heritage and background, and that's not a bad thing. But we know what it's like to be motivated and find our worth in this thing or that thing. Last week, I talked about how the gospel was good news for those who are lost, who are far from God. That we can come to God and through Jesus, find the good news of a new record before God. No matter our sins, we can come to Him, find ourselves not only forgiven, but declared righteous in God's sight. Because the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. So that we are not condemned, but we are set free. But this week, I want to turn and focus on another promise of the gospel. The promise of a new heart. It's printed for us in our bulletin every single week. This is where that uh, gift of righteousness that's given by faith, that's a declaration of God, which is kind of external to us in a sense. This is where the gospel comes home. Where we internalize it. I want to talk about what it means for us to embrace the gospel not just as something that happens outside of us, but a work that God does within us as well. How the gospel speaks a word of hope that God, by His grace, is transforming us to be like Jesus. So I'm going to break this up into a couple of different sections to help us get our mind around it. The first one's this, Jesus plus. Jesus plus. You know, a minute ago, we used the words of the Westminster Confession to, or Catechism to... Um, you know, confess our faith. We spoke about what faith was, right? To rest, to receive and rest upon who Jesus is for our salvation. But what's next? What is our greatest need after we've placed our faith in Jesus? We've done that. We've come to faith. We're trusting in Him. What is our greatest need after we come to faith in Jesus? You know, I think it's pretty common for Christians to say, okay, I've got the gospel. I got it. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He resurrected from the grave. I got it. But now, now, 
It's time for me to man up. It's time for me to woman up. Jesus has done so much for me, it's time for me to do something for him. The Gospels are the ABCs of Christianity. And I got that, but I need to learn the rest of the alphabet. I got to move on to something else. I need Jesus and faith in him plus something to make me For me to mature, I need Jesus plus something. Maybe we don't say it explicitly like this. And there's extreme versions. I grew up and I heard extreme versions of Jesus Plus, you've received forgiveness, but don't sin again. Because as soon as you sin, you lost everything. You've gotten into the kingdom of God by grace, but as soon as you mess up, you are booted out. You need to be forgiven again and start all over. I was told, I distinctly remember this, I was told once that if I'd asked for forgiveness of sins, I had it at the grace of God. But let's say I walked out and on the way home, I had an impure thought. And got hit by a car. If I hadn't repented of that individual sin that I had committed, then I was going to split the gates of hell wide open. That every time I messed up, every time I leaned into selfishness, it was like starting over all over again. That's an extreme version of Jesus plus. That's Jesus plus the need to be perfect. But I think the more malicious kinds of Jesus plus, the ones that really eat our hearts away, are the ones that look holy, that look really religious. Here's what I mean. There's a couple different ways we can think about this. So what's our greatest need after we come to faith in Christ? Maybe we say, okay, my greatest need now that I've had my faith in Christ is for me to learn a bunch of things. Jesus plus knowledge. I need to really get at reading this book and that book. I need to make sure I read the Bible in a year. I need to read some theology books. I need to memorize some creeds of the church. My greatest need is to develop my mind and to gather facts like I gather treasures and treasures. Jesus plus knowledge will make me whole and complete. Or maybe we think our, our greatest need is to really feel our faith, to really develop our emotional life. And so we say, I mean, Jesus plus I got to start praying regularly. I got to pray an hour a day. That it's important for us to have Jesus plus these big emotional times in our lives. That we really cry and demonstrate the reality of our faith by how passionate we are. Maybe we think we need Jesus plus speaking in tongues or whatever. You know, I need Jesus plus this developed emotional time. Or maybe we say this. My greatest need is to get really active in doing things and serving it. I need Jesus plus these works. I'm going to find ways to serve sacrificially. I'm going to give 10%. You know what? I'm going to give 11% of my income to the church. And we think, I need Jesus, faith in Him, plus these things to do to make me complete. What all these things tell us, I think, explicitly or implicitly, is that the grace of Jesus has a stopping point and is not enough. That Jesus and his love for us is enough to get us in the door. But if we really want to grow, if we really want to mature, then we need to find some good old you know, American work ethic, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, and really get to it. But the gospel of Jesus is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. It's the whole thing. 
The grace of Jesus is the whole thing. And adding anything to Jesus in his grace is a subtraction, always. Always. Because anytime we add faith in Jesus plus whatever that extra thing is equals will make me complete, what we inevitably are going to do is take our focus off of Jesus and put it on whatever that plus is. And then that's going to be the thing when we rest our head at night on our pillow that we really pat ourselves on the back about. Yeah, I've got faith in Jesus plus I learned these memory verses. Well, I'm going to go to bed and be like, I got those 15 memory verses down. It's not I'm sufficient in Christ. It's I've got this thing. I really serve these people well today. Adding anything to faith in Jesus to prove our worth is always a subtraction. Our greatest need to hammer this home after we come to faith in Jesus for the first time is to keep coming by faith to Jesus over and over and over again. We don't move on to other wells to drink from. We don't move on to other things to try to build our life on. We don't move on to other things to try to make ourselves mature. We never move on from the unbelievable truth that in Jesus, God has proven His profound love for us and has chased us to the very bottom of the depths of who we are, to the darkest places to free us. We never move on. So, if it's not Jesus plus something, what is it? Well, our verse today that Gavin read for us a minute ago said what? The just, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. This is a verse that you can originally find in, in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. It's quoted a number of times in the, the New Testament in Galatians and Romans and Hebrews explicitly. But it's in the background. It loomed large in the imagination of the New Testament church after the resurrection of Jesus. That the just live by faith. That our greatest need is Jesus and what He has accomplished. That we never move on from this. We never move on from relying on Him. We never move on. Not just for forgiveness. Yes, that's huge, obvious. But our greatest need to, is to be nourished on Jesus. To thrive in Jesus. To find Him as our lifeblood. Now, that, that doesn't mean we need to be uh, declared righteous in God's sight again. We talked about that last week. That's already ours by faith. That's not a contract that needs to be renewed. So we don't ever, it's not like we suddenly fall away from being righteous in God's sight in Christ and we got to come back to it time and time again. That's not it. But we do need new hearts. We do need to have God do a work within us that changes our motivations. And that's what this is. The gospel promise of a new heart. God is working not just outside of me, but within me. Look how we have it written in our bulletin. It's off to the side there. The promise of a new heart. That God is transforming every part of us. He's making Jesus and His love our motive and our way to thrive in life. The emphasis is on who? Not me. Not me getting enough motivation within me. The emphasis is on the sufficiency of God and the work of that He's doing to give us a new heart. This is something we can see throughout Scripture. You can go to places like Ezekiel 36. God promises to give His people a new heart. You can go to the New Testament. Look at uh, Colossians 3. 
It talks about it in terms of putting on a new self, being renewed in knowledge, in the image of our Creator. The idea is that God has done a work within us where we can now reflect rightly our Father. That sin had interrupted that. We only reflected Him in broken and partial ways. But God is restoring us and now we can reflect Him in ways we couldn't before. Ephesians 2 talks about it as God renewing us in righteousness and holiness. In knowledge, righteousness and holiness. What it's saying is God renews every part of who we are. Head, heart, and hands. Knowledge, righteousness, so action, and holiness. Motivations, affections. The whole emphasis here is this. It's not about drawing from within us some motivation to really get that. God's in He's giving us new hearts. It's Him renewing us in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And we never move on from relying on His work of grace for us and in us. Now, we grow in it. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that the gospel makes us passive. Where we just lay back and let Jesus do everything. And we kind of sit on the religious couch and He does, he does all, the, all the thing and we're not involved. That's not what I'm saying. We grow in our faith. But it's not growth that we make happen. We're like flowers in a garden. We don't water ourselves. We don't make the sun come up. Right? We never move on from a time when we need His grace less. We never move on to a time when the love of God is not the gas in our tank that keeps us going. Guys, the gospel is the on-ramp to the highway. It's the highway. It's the car we sit in. It's the gas in the car. The gospel of Jesus and His love for us is the whole deal. We never move on from that. We treasure Jesus and we're treasured by Him. We delight in Jesus because He delights in us. We're always driven and motivated by the God who moved in grace toward us before we could ever move toward Him. To say it again, our greatest need after believing the gospel the first time is to keep coming back to the gospel. Not just the gospel is something that happens outside of us, but the good news that God's transforming us. That His sin will not leave us in our sin and selfishness. That He will not leave us to the whims of our small desires, but He's changing us to be like Him, to love what He loves, to value what He values, to be generous and welcoming, because He is generous and welcoming. That's the good news of a new heart. Now, none of that is at odds with us developing the life of our mind or deeply feeling the reality of God's love for us or getting after acts of service. But where does the motivation for that, what is the thing that makes us thrive in that? It's the sufficiency of who Jesus is. Those are never badges of righteousness that we wear to impress other people. And if we detract Jesus and His sufficiency, then all of those places will just be spots where we can perform. If we take grace and, the, and faith in Jesus Christ out of the mix, then we're just going to be measuring our worth by how many books we read. If we take Jesus out of the mix, then we're just going to be measuring our worth and and how emotional we can demonstrate we are to other people. I've done it before. Raise my hands while I'm singing and I'm thinking, who's, who's watching 
me? Who gets to see me every week? I see the whole week. The very lifeblood, every step of faith is delighting in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how we grow. I know I keep saying it over and over again, but we are so prone to forgiveness. Now that doesn't mean that the Christian life is a straight line. It's not. Christian life is not a straight line that just keeps ascending upwards of unending progress. A lot of times it's three steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's two steps forward, three steps back. The path of following Jesus is more like a spiral that, you know, tends upward, but sometimes you're going to be up here, sometimes you're going to be down here. It's a roller coaster. But guys, we're strapped in. It might be a roller coaster, but we're strapped in and we're safe and we are held by God's love for us. And we can be sure that this path, no matter what it holds before us, will lead us to Him. So as we struggle, as we doubt, as we realize the depth of our selfishness that's still within us, do not turn to try to find inner strength to overcome it. Draw your strength and your nourishment from Jesus. It's a love that will not let you go. The most important thing is not how big your faith is or how great and strong your grasp is on Jesus. It's that He holds you. The point is not how much faith you had. It is the object of your faith. You can walk in confidence or even sometimes crawl in confidence because it's God who is at work, calling out new life from within you. In close, at the end of our service every week, I, I pronounce a, a benediction, a blessing. And I think every worship service we've done as a church, I have done the blessing from number six. Lord bless you, keep you, and make his face to shine on you. I love it. I love it. But today, we're actually going to do a different we're going to do one that's from 1 Thessalonians 5. It's more words from the Apostle Paul. And the reason why is because it hits so eloquently what we're talking talk about this morning. Look at it, actually. I'll read it now. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. The reason why I picked this one today is because as we go out of these doors, we are going to be so prone to jump back in into a world that tells us we're valuable because of this, that, or the other. A world that tells us to be motivated to get into hustle culture and find side gigs so we can build a big enough nest egg. A world that tells us that we need to uh, find our worth and value in this thing or that thing. But we need to hear the blessing as we go from 1 Thessalonians 5 that God will keep us. That it's the God of peace himself who's bringing us to peace. That no matter how long your walk following after Jesus will be, it is him who guarantees that at the end of it, you are blameless in the sight of God. It will be him who leads you home in our confidence, not in our good intentions, not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus, period. Father, we thank you for the gospel. That it's not just something we believe one time and then we move on to something else. That it's not the sufficiency of Jesus for forgiveness of sins, but then if we really want to be whole and complete, we need to find something else. And we thank you, Lord, that we have been brought to you and joined to Jesus. We can treasure him and be nourished on his love for us over and over 
and over again, to find it sufficient over and over and over again. Impress this upon our hearts and seal it to us, Lord, that we will not forget it. That as we leave this place and we will be so tempted to be turning to other things to find our motivation. Let's find our motivation in the fact that we are loved by you. That we are your dearly beloved daughters and sons. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.